0: Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, the scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, verse, uh, books 3 and 4. So specifically Acts 3, verses 1 to 10. Acts 4, verses 1 to 7, 13 to 17, and 21 to 31. So bear with me. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign God, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together. Against the Lord and against his anointed one. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of God.
1: I just want to alert you that the clock at the back of the sanctuary is broken. There's no clock, so y'all are in trouble. Just kidding. Got a little clock right here. We're continuing in our study of the wonderful book of Acts found in the New Testament, the story of the beginnings of the Christian church, the story of the disciples as they began to grow in number, as well as in courage, as well as in their fullness of the Holy Spirit. And today we're coming upon chapters three and four, which gives us this wonderful story with wonderful lessons for all of us to pick up on. So let's pause and pray before we learn from the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this story, this true story, these words. And we pray that these words would not fall on ears that resist you, but that you would penetrate our hearts that you would move us by your spirit, that you would teach us truths about yourself, about us, about one another, and that you would give us your Holy Spirit because what we're about to do here is it's not just a human endeavor, listening to human words, trying to change ourselves by human will. This is a spiritual endeavor. We need you, God, to come, to open our eyes, to change our lives. Please do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was three, it was three in the afternoon. The apostles Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray as they often did. And they came upon a man there. He was 40 years old, we're told in verse 22. He was physically disabled by some congenital condition. He couldn't walk. He'd never actually taken a single step his entire life. Every day, this crippled man was carried to the temple by friends or relatives, were told to beg those going into the temple courts. He sat in the very same spot every day. People recognized him, they were well familiar with him. He was sitting there in the same spot every day, right there in front of a gate that apparently was nicknamed Beautiful, according to ancient sources. It was an ornate gate of bronze with unparalleled workmanship. It was beautiful, 75 feet tall with huge double doors, which of course means that the contrast couldn't have been sharper against the backdrop of this impressive, beautiful gate, so admired in fact that it had even been given a name, was a man with no name, we don't hear his name this entire passage just to make a point, a man insignificant in the eyes of the world, a man far from beautiful, a man that was broken, a man like you and me in so many ways. He called out to two strangers who were about to enter through the gates, he's asking them for money. Peter and John stopped and looked at him, and can you just imagine, nobody ever looked at this man. They looked at him, and Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And what happened next, all three of their lives would be changed forever. This is a a three-part story that span across chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Acts. And I said of this crippled man, Peter and John, that all three of their lives were changed forever. Because, of course, this man's life was changed. He was miraculously healed. But also, because of this healing the religious authorities arrested, imprisoned, and threatened Peter and John in what, in fact, was the very first instance of the persecution of the earliest Christians. And Peter and John, shaken by their experience, they pray together with the new Christian community. And So we have many lives that were impacted by this moment. And so we're going to look at three parts of this story under these three themes, first, compassion, secondly, opposition, and thirdly, supplication. Compassion, opposition, and supplication, which is another word for prayer. Let's take a look. Number one, what do we learn about compassion? So we find out in the very opening sentence of the book of Acts, this is meant to be the story of the continuing ministry of Jesus, who has now physically ascended in heaven, but continues to do his work of love and mercy by his Spirit through his people. In other words, what we find in Peter and John and the other disciples is them serving as Jesus' mouth speaking his words, Jesus's hands extending in love and mercy and compassion, Jesus's feet moving from town to town to town with the words of the gospel. In other words, what we have here are not just a story of two men, but actually a portrait, a picture of God's compassion for us. And what do we see? We learn that God gives us better than we ask for. Better than we deserve. God in his compassion gives us better than we even know how to ask for. Right? Because this man in all his desperation asks Peter and John for money. Well, of course he did. That's what he needed. At least that's what he was most aware of what he needed. The man asked for money and Peter and John give him complete healing. Notice, Peter wasn't ignoring this man's need for money. His disabled body was actually the cause of his impoverished condition. So Peter was actually going right to the root of the man's problem, his poverty. He wasn't giving him less than he asked for. Peter was actually giving him more than he asked for. And that's just like God. God loves us with an even preemptive love. He jumps ahead of us, knowing our greatest needs, better than we do. We often cry out to God and we pray for things, usually the change of circumstances. God, it hurts, help it to not hurt. That's not a bad prayer, that's a good prayer. God invites us to pray that way. But God wants to go even deeper with us, he always does, to the place where it hurts the most, where we need his grace most, where we need his healing most and that's straight in our soul. He loves us not only in body, but also in soul, both at the same time. This is, of course, the story of the cross. Jesus is one who comes promising to heal us of all of our wounds and all of our needs. Jesus, of course, died and rose again physically from the dead as a promise that one day all those that are found in him will also be renewed, healed, and restored physically, perfectly, finally. No more death, no more tears, no more pain, no more chronic disease. One day it will be true. And yet even now he provides healing to the deepest places of our souls. You see, nobody asked God To send his son to atone for our sins. And yet that's exactly what God did. We heard a reference earlier to Romans 5, 8 as being the key verse to these young ladies' camp experience last year. Isn't this also the story of God's preemptive love to us? Because God demonstrates his own love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gives us better than we ask for. God gives us more than we ask for. That's why he sent us Jesus. Have you received his gifts with thanksgiving? We also see here how God looks us in the eye and he lifts us by the hand. He comes to us up close and personal. His compassion brings the God of the universe this close, not just from afar, Do you know a God like that? In verse four, when we're told that Peter looked straight at him, as did John, looking this man in the eye, that's actually a translation of a very strong word for look. It doesn't just mean a glance. It doesn't just mean seen with eyes for a moment. It actually means to fix your gaze on something or someone. Peter and John were looking this man deep into the eyes, almost as if to restore his humanity. We all have a need to be seen. And especially in our hardest times when we feel most in trouble, most in pain, aren't those the moments when we feel most lonely? Possibly because we don't actually have people, community surrounding us, But maybe most especially because we don't feel the empathy, the sympathy that we most need. We don't feel like anyone understands. We don't feel like anyone else has gone through precisely what I am going through. And sometimes that might actually factually be true. No one else really gets all that you're going through. But there is one who dies. And his name is Jesus. We're told that he's our sympathetic high priest. He's experienced everything that we've gone through and he can see us and look us in the eyes in our most hurting moments and he can connect with us in our pain because he knows exactly what you go through. We are people that are desperate with a need to be seen. Can you confess together with Hagar who in desperation confessed after seeing God in the wilderness, she says, You are the God who sees me. Do you know a God like that? Who in his compassion sees you in your deepest times of desperation, loneliness, and need. And in all of this compassion that God pours out into our lives, he only asks that we trust him, put our faith in him. It might have been hard to notice, but this man was actually full of faith. In verse 5, we're told that the man was not only looked at, but he looked back at them. He gave them his attention, we're told. He was expectant, not hard-hearted and hopeless. He was looking forward to what might be given to him next. We're told when Peter took him by the right hand and helped him up in verse 7, we're told the man himself struggled to his feet. Then his ankles and his feet became strong and he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And we cannot take for granted that this too was an act of faith. That he actually didn't sit back and respond cynically. Are you kidding me? Did not sit back and say after Peter said in the name of Jesus, walk. He didn't say, whatever. I said, can you give me some money? What are you talking about? (laughs) Walk. If you hear it some way, it could almost sound like a cruel joke. And yet here's a man who lifts his body up, props himself up, stumbles forward, reaches out his hand, grips Peter's hand, and finds himself suddenly healed. Later in verse 16, that's not printed in your bulletin, Peter explains to the crowds, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. All that God asks is that you grab onto his helping hand. He doesn't ask you to save yourself. He just asks that you receive with gratitude the salvation that he gives you. He doesn't ask that you heal yourself, he simply asks that you would receive his healing. He doesn't ask you to make yourself no longer needy, he simply asks you in faith to admit your need, which sometimes is the hardest thing to do. Have you cried out to God needy lately? Have you unmasked that fake perfect put together self in community and actually exposed just how desperate you are for a friend? you're lonely, for healing because you're hurting, for forgiveness because you're dying with guilt, or for relief because your body, like this man's, just hurts. God only asks that we trust him. That's how wonderful his compassion really is. He pours that out all over our lives. He says, just open your arms. wide." But what we also find in this story is not only a picture of God's compassion, also a picture of our compassion for others. Now strengthened by the compassion of God, we have something to give those in need immediately around us. as The Holy Spirit fills us and makes us more like Jesus as he made Peter and John a little picture of Jesus. As you read this, if you're familiar with the stories and the gospels of the life of Jesus, the way that he healed people, you're supposed to say, hey, we've seen this before. Mm -hmm. It's just like Jesus once did. And in the same way, when you start to live out a life of compassion towards those around you, people are supposed to say, hold on a second, we've seen that before. The life of Jesus living in and through you, through your lives of compassion. So what does that look like? A couple things come to mind observing this passage. Number one, compassion, how do you do it? Number one, start with the people right in front of you. Peter and John stopped and cared for the man as they were passing by the gate, almost, almost passing by him until they noticed him, until he spoke to them when he called out to them. Peter and John didn't go out immediately just looking indiscriminately for someone to heal, for someone to pour out compassion upon. Rather, they took seriously by God's providence the person that was immediately in front of them. This story is a story of compassion that shows up because two men cared about a neighbor immediately to their left and immediately to their right. And I want to note that this is a bit different from the way that most of us feel on a day-to-day basis, especially in this modern age, and perhaps even more so in a city like Washington, D.C., because we are trained and taught and sometimes even guilted, can we say, into feeling like we are responsible for the whole world. Responsible for every kind of need. Responsible to be the healer and the deliverer of compassion to every person on the face of the planet. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a heart that's growing to be as big as the world insofar as we have the very infinite heart of Jesus growing within us. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge just how overwhelming and even exhausting that sometimes can make us feel. You've got to save everybody. You've got to heal everybody. You've got to be invested in every need. You have to give up your life for every single kind of person, not just this person, but after you heal the proverbial Disabled man in front of you, as Peter and John did, the next thought in your mind is, well, where are the other gates and why haven't I also healed them? One of the problems, I think, that arises when we feel this way, the pressure makes us start to pretend as if we've actually done that kind of healing. We feel like we're responsible for the world, so we fake it like we've actually healed the whole world. I think that's why we find so much virtue signaling on social media, people trying to comment on every issue as if they've actually changed every issue, or people crippled with guilt and exhaustion, not even able to move to touch one life, one person. Friends, the Bible teaches us time and again that Christians do actually need to have a global vision of the reach of God's grace, And we do actually need to extend our compassion beyond our human limits, yes. But we are most responsible for those that are immediately in front of us. Whoever and whatever is immediately in front of you. Care for the people, most of all, on your own block, wherever you live. Love the neighbors and the people that are falling apart, who are already in your life. Don't look past them. Don't look past even the very people next to you in these pews. Peter and John didn't. They loved like neighbors. Secondly, a simple reminder, to look at people with compassion. As we said earlier, God touches us in a powerful, transformative way simply because he looks at us. He pays attention to us. What a grace when we do the same for other people. Three times in this passage we're told that Peter and John looked straight at him and then Peter said, look at us and then we're told the man gave them his attention. They were locked in their gaze towards one another. What can it look like for you just to give Better eye contact to people whom you're passing by on the sidewalks, to people that you're passing by in the aisle of the church to actually acknowledge people's existence, let alone their belovedness in Christ. Your eyes are a powerful tool for communicating the very compassion of Christ. Will you use that this week? Thirdly, make room for faith. Peter and John healed him by their words, commanding him by God's power to walk, and yet they also helped him up and gave room for this man to exercise expectation, to wobble his ankles and to get up onto his feet. Sometimes out of a sincere heart, when we walk with people in compassion, maybe they're hurting physically, maybe they're hurting emotionally, sometimes we try to do everything for them. And it comes from a sincere heart. We love them. We're hurting with them. And so we want to erase and eliminate every place in which it hurts. And yet look at Peter and John. They give room. They make space for this person to actually dare to trust in God. Make room for faith. To believe in the promises of God. To dare to step out. To dare to trust that God is their healer, that God is their rescuer, that God is the lover of their souls. And so sometimes that means being free not to have to scurry around with anxiety as though you are their ultimate healer. No, no. Are you teaching them, helping them, even as you yourself are learning to trust in God? And relatedly, and lastly, point people to the praise of God. Even as you show compassion, walk with people, here's a question. When they are healed or when they improve or when they feel better or when they find relief or when their circumstances change, who gets the credit? Because, notice in verse 8, we're told that this man once healed jumped to his feet and began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping, and... Praising God. Praising God. Now, how did he know to praise God? God. Do you know how? Remember what Peter said. Walk. No. What did he say? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Right from the start, this man knew that whatever might happen in these next few seconds. It's because of the name of Jesus. What does it look like for us to extend compassion to one another, but in such a way where we're pointing them ultimately towards the praise of God? Do we care for people, even as friends, or maybe in your neighborhood or block, Do we care for people in Jesus' name so that they give him praise when things get better? So that they know that he's the one that's doing the ultimate caring? So that they give him credit and not just you? So that they thank him and not just you? In other words, do you give your compassion in a way that is appropriately deflecting? So that people notice the power of God and not just your kindness. And I don't mean that we start to be weird and artificial when someone says thank you. And Christian people do this a lot. No, it wasn't me. Don't thank me. Right? No, we can say you're welcome. (laughs) We can say it was my joy to walk with you. Or if you're a Chick-fil-A fan, you can say it was my pleasure. (laughs) It's right for us to say simple words of acknowledgement like that. You're welcome. I'm glad to walk with you, to love you. But what I mean is, are we giving room for people to notice God? We're pointing people to depend on God. And most certainly not upon us. What's one way, dear friends, that you can share the compassion of Jesus like this with someone in your life in the coming week? What can this sort of compassion look like? Starting with your own Embrace of God's compassion for you in Christ. Number one, compassion. Number two, opposition. We'll move more quickly here. Opposition. <laughs> We're told in verse 17 and beyond that the religious leaders here in this area did not like what was going on. And in fact, they imprisoned, they arrested, and they threatened Peter and John and threw them the entire Christian community, for healing a man, for relieving his suffering. Verse 7, we're told they decided we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. In verse 21, we're told, after further threats, they let them go. Why did the religious leaders here get so mad? And do you know what the answer is? Because they themselves felt Threatened. Let me explain a little bit more. Notice what they are most interested in when they interrogate Peter and John. In chapter 4, verse 7, we're told that they ask them this. This is their main question. By what power or what name did you do this? They're concerned about power. They're concerned about a threat to their authority to their right to have a name. And notice also this very powerful sentence here in verse 13 of chapter four, of what they see when they look out and notice something about Peter and John, we're told while when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They noticed that they were unschooled. That means that they hadn't received a formal theological training. They hadn't gone to seminary or the equivalent in the ancient Jewish world. They didn't have the right credentials. So how could it be that they could speak so courageously? How can they stand there so confidently? In other words, if I were them, I certainly wouldn't. Isn't it interesting that of all the things that stood out to them in that moment, they noticed Peter and John's resume. They felt threatened by this healing, threatened by the apostles' teaching for this reason, as one commentator put it. They feared the subversive implications of the apostles' teaching. They saw the apostles not only as heretics, but as disturbers of the peace and threats to their power. That's why it says in verse 2 that they were greatly disturbed. The Sanhedrin, these rulers, were sort of the Senate and Supreme Court of the Jewish people. These religious leaders were the ruling class in that society. A lot of them were wealthy aristocrats. These were men of prestige and status and title and influence. And the story of God's grace is deeply offensive to people such as these. The story of grace that says, look, the people that God prizes are weak people. People that are very comfortable with saying, I can't. People that know that their identity before the world And their standing before God is not ultimately grounded in their credentials before man. What they've accomplished, what titles they hold, what kind of worldly influence they wield from day to day. Unqualified people, quote unquote, mess up the world of people that insist on living in a meritocracy where the best are rewarded, where the most educated are prized, where the most accomplished are the most powerful, and here comes grace threatening it all. Grace, of course, is the most freeing thing in the world to finally know that your sense of significance, your identity doesn't depend at last Upon what you've accomplished and how much you've done? That's a freeing message. Do you know that story of grace? And yet for those still clinging on to title and status at first, it's deeply threatening. It starts to make everything crumble around you. What do you mean that's not the grounds for my importance in this world? And this is how it works. Threatened people begin to threaten others. Fearful people begin to inflict fear and terror upon others. They might have been puffing up their chest and wagging their fingers and threatening harm to Peter and John, and yet they were the most insecure people in the room. Like you and me. Like you and me. Oh, can we be honest? Honest. About the deep, fragile hearts that we have, because we think what makes us valuable in the eyes of God and the world and the mirror in front of me are the things that I accomplish, the titles that I hold, and my status in this world. Don't you want to be freed by God's grace? We are so accustomed to finding our courage, our boldness, our confidence in these status forms that we can almost not even compute as these Sanhedrin members couldn't even compute what was going on in front of them. Uneducated, unschooled men that somehow were able to stand with courage before the powers of the world. And so I want to ask you, in what ways do you find yourself getting mad these days? because you feel like your power and status is getting threatened. And in what ways do you maybe find yourself getting mad at somebody that is that source of threat to you? Maybe someone that's doing better than you and you just can't stand it, you can't stand them. Maybe somebody that's doing worse than you in your eyes but they seem to be rewarded more and you just can't stand it, it's messing up the scale. How can it be that I could be doing more and yet they can be rewarded more. That's living by merit, not by grace. Where do you place your confidence? Where do you find your security, dear friends? Look at Peter and John. Not much before the world, not much by way of human authority and power and credentials, and yet they had a deep courage that even astonished the perpetrators in front of them. It was a courage that came from certainty, not about their standing in the world, but about the love of Christ and their standing before God because of Jesus. Do not forget that Peter was the apostle that several times denied Jesus publicly, even after claiming that he would stand courageously for Jesus. This was the coward of all cowards, Failing the test when in the cauldron, and yet here he's been restored by the love of Jesus, Jesus who forgave him, Jesus that named him, Jesus that said, Peter, I love you, do you love me? Let's form a deal, a pact, a covenant where you will build my church. I'm entrusting my people to you and to your apostles, your fellow apostles, Jesus, who had given himself this trust, given this entrustment to Peter, Peter now who knows the love of Christ, who knows that his sins have been been wiped out, who knows that God is on his side. And so he wasn't afraid. We're told that Peter and John stood there and the others took note that they had been with Jesus. There's a certain security a certain confidence, a certain courage that comes from having been with Jesus. Even when you don't have things that might be impressive to those around you or to yourself. Dear friends, do you have a confidence that's ultimately rooted in that you've been with Jesus? Thirdly and finally, we find a story of supplication. This is prayer, and I'll close with this. They went straight to their friends and family in Christ, Peter and John, after they were released. They reported everything that, they had, that had just happened, and of course, they were scared, understandably afraid, and how do we know? It's because they were praying for boldness, and you don't pray for boldness unless you're at least a little bit afraid. Friends, courage... Doesn't mean not being afraid. Courage is being faithful even in the face of your fear. Doing what you know you need to do even though you're afraid. That's what courage is. And so they bring their fear to God in prayer. And the one thing I want to note to you is just how big a God they turn to and pray to. When you're afraid, how big a vision is your vision of God?
2: Hmm.
1: Listen to how they pray in verse 24 and following. Sovereign Lord, they say, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers bond together against the Lord and against his anointed one, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, what do we see here? Number one, quickly, quick couple things. They address God of all names that they could address him by, a sovereign Lord. You're the king who has power over all things. The Sanhedrin told them to stop preaching the name of Jesus, but they knew that they were accountable to a higher authority. They worshiped God. Number two, they acknowledged God's power over all of creation, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see how they're just expanding their vision of God? Thirdly, they depersonalize the attack against them. They say this ultimately is against the Lord. They quote this verse from the Old Testament. From David, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They're acknowledging that the anger, the wrath is actually ultimately not against them. It's against God. It's against his grace. Fourthly, they see their suffering is united to Christ's suffering. We see in verse 27, where they see that Jesus suffered in a like manner before Herod and Pontius Pilate. We too are suffering under this conspiracy in the same manner. Number five, they recognize God's control over their oppressors. In verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen, that even those that are perpetrating evil against them, God has them in his hands as well. Listen to what John Stott, a commentator, teacher, theologian, and author wrote about this very prayer. He says, we observe that before the people came to any petition, any request of God, they filled their minds with thoughts of the divine sovereignty. And only now with their vision of God clarified in themselves, humbled before him, were they ready at last to pray. In other words, when you're afraid, Will you, like the apostles, draw to your mind creative and scriptural remembrances of all the ways in which God is very big and God is very much in control over all your circumstances and the things that are causing you fear? And do you notice that when they pray like this, what is it that they ask in the end? What was the request that the apostles made to God in this prayer? When they've been threatened, when even their lives are perhaps at stake, what do they pray for? Boldness. To keep speaking. To keep on ministering to people. To continue the very ministry that got them into trouble in the first place. They didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for the removal of the threat. They didn't ask for miracles of vengeance or destruction, but rather they were praying for more miracles of mercy like the one of compassion that they themselves had produced. You see, what we need most in moments of fear and insecurity isn't greater self-esteem, it's greater God-esteem. You need to know that there's something bigger than that thing that you think is threatening you so terribly. We need to know that there's a bigger God who's sovereign over even our greatest fears. And we need to pray like that. Chris Astong, who was a, an old ancient preacher a long time ago, commented on this passage that the place was shaken and that made them all the more unshaken. Do you hear, after they prayed like this, there was a little bit of an earthquake. Why did it shake? Because God came down. God was there. They were shaken. They were emboldened. And because the place was shaken, that made them all the more unshaken in their hearts. In other words, when you fear God, you cease to fear other things. When God is very big, your problems begin to look more small. I don't mean to make light of whatever it is you're struggling with. But will you lift up your eyes and sing along with that second song that we sung earlier? I have made you too small in my eyes. Be magnified, Oh Lord. Do you see a big God, a God big enough that if he were to touch down, the whole ground would shake? And when he does, that it wouldn't scare you, it re- would reassure you, because you know to whom you are most accountable. You know whom you worship. You know who's big, not only in his power, but also his mercy, his compassion, his grace. Will you make it you more fearless, more bold to be compassionate, even at great cost to yourself, even at, when it seems to threaten people that cling to their status and power, even when it seems to threaten you, yourself? Do you know the compassion and the power of God in this way? Can we together learn a little bit of the secret of the compassion and courage of Christ? Beloved, let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come and most of all, touch us with the compassion of God, that we would know how much you love us, see us, lift us up that we might be lifters of others and healers of others and seers of others, especially those immediately around us and in front of us. Dear Jesus, make us more like you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing. I'm not clear. That's all right. Uh, so let's talk about it a little bit. What's on your mind? Yes? It doesn't probably have a support for it. That's all right. The, uh, in verse
2: 27 and 28, uh, yeah. it's says the people of Israel and the Gentiles, conscious cautious pilot, and gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Yeah. Um, so their actions were predetermined. Does that... You, you talk about
1: the tension between free will, where do they actually have free will, and Jesus those predetermined actions, and if they didn't have free will, could they be held and, and reasonably put to account for. That's good. So, it's a great question, right? Because that's exactly the right sort of higher level sort of reflection that that verse invites. The crucifixion of Jesus was predetermined by God Then, in what way were these people free to make their own choices? Even evil choices, in crucifying Jesus. This is what theologians would describe as the tension between divine sovereignty, God's power over all things, and human responsibility. In a very quick nutshell, this is the important point I think to make about this: that God is control over all things. He directs all our choices, even the bad ones that we make, in some way. God is still in control and superintending over those things. By the way, if you're uncomfortable with that, that's actually what gives us hope that he can veto and overturn and redeem even our bad choices. So we want to give him that power and acknowledge that he can take even bad things and still have his hand on them. But what the Bible does say is that when, even though God is sovereign over all of our choices, even the evil ones, that does not negate our moral responsibility for them. That in some way, those choices still are ours. It is still a, a true product of the agency of our own wills. We're still responsible for it. And yet, in some way, God is also in control of all those things. It is a mystery how those pieces fit together. Normally, we want to conclude it's one or the other. Either I have total freedom of choice and God can't, da 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 da, or we say God is in control and therefore we're all just puppets and the whole thing is a farce. It's a little bit more of this intertwined mystery So, that's a great question. I don't know if that clarified anything because I know you could probably give me eight more follow up questions, but just to give you the nugget to chew on and we can talk a little, uh, more afterwards as well. Thanks so much for that Any other questions? I don't Want to talk theology, okay? We, we just do that. Oh, Chris. Uh, so in, in coming to love our neighbors yeah. and being generous and giving our not just our resources but our time and our love. Yes. And our relationships. Yeah. Um, will, you, will you speak to those of us with boundary problems? Yeah. As we What kind of boundary problems? problems? Um, the too much kind or the too little kind? The, the too Ooh. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and how we can how we can not be selfish or unchristian in having any boundaries. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the question is <laughs> about boundaries. So we're called to love with compassion,
1: and that means not just giving your stuff, but also giving your heart, your time. Sometimes in a town like this, giving your time is the hardest thing. You want know, would rather? Pay the problem to go away. Mm-hmm. To give your life, to give your heart, your emotions, your ear. No, 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 I don't have time for that, right? That's sometimes the hardest thing to give. So the question is, well, how do you do that but with healthy boundaries, right? Or how do you do that not just eliminating and erasing boundaries? I, I think that, so the Bible doesn't talk in terms of boundaries per se. But rather, it talks about alternate callings that we need to also honor. So it doesn't ever say, draw a line and don't cross it. Don't love that much. And that's kind of how we sometimes think about it. And that's why it feels selfish. And actually, it's kind of unbiblical love, but only that far. No, Jesus says, lay down your life for one another. But what he also says is, whoever sat So there's a competing call that we need to find the right tension between. It's not love less, it's love, but you also better rest. Because even Jesus got away. Even Jesus had limits and embraced them to how many hours a day he could be healing and teaching. Even the very Son of God himself stopped. So who do you think you is that you're not going to stop? How important do you think you really are that you're not going to stop if even the Son of God found it holy and to stop, most especially to restore his soul, because if you keep giving and giving and giving, there's gonna be a point where you've got nothing to give. So to fuel the tank again with the grace of Christ and to spend time with God and to restore your body and your soul and your mind. So these things are important. So that's just one example about how the commitment to Sabbath creates what we might call boundaries, but really what it is is a tension where we're kind of finding a rhythm between loving sacrificially and also restoring our soul. And it's not drawing an artificial line where we're saying, I'll love, but never that far. Right? Here's another boundary, or what we might call boundary, is that sometimes loving endlessly and flooding a person with your sincere compassion may not always be the best thing for that person. Yeah. It relates to some of what I was trying to touch on there making room for people to discover their need, not just for your help, but their help from God or leaving room for just other ways in which other people can step in, leaving room for uh, just this need for a person not to become so dependent upon you, and this could be your next door neighbor, this could be your roommate or whatever, there's a way in which compassion should limit compassion. Hmm. It's not lovelessness that says no more, it's actually love in terms of what's best for them that says, you know what, I'm not gonna show up just this time in the business space here. I'm not gonna do everything I possibly can, and then some more, because I've got to be able to do this again tomorrow, so I'm gonna stop, and that's what's gonna be best for them, right? So, different ways in which to think about it, but I think it's holding this tension between multiple callings to loving God and loving neighbor that God has given to us, rather than drawing artificial boundaries and feeling like we're called to be selfish. Yeah. yeah. Plus, I see a I'm going to have to turn it off here I didn't have to take Let's talk though. I, sorry, this hasn't happened in a long time. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's keep talking about it. Ask your questions. Ask your questions of each other. I'm not going to the only one with answers. You know that. You know that. Uh, Grow in wisdom together in small groups over lunch even today. But let's come and eat the compassion of Christ. That's what communion is. This is a feast where you are given in a form that you cannot not just hear about but now also receive physically through bread and wine and juice the compassion of Jesus through his spilled blood for you on the cross. Jesus can give you grace to know God's love and then to give God's love. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for this communion table. It's a gift to us that we could be refueled and restored, strengthened in our confidence in your love. Make us bold in this time, bold in your love, that we might be able to serve sacrificially again and again and again. And so Jesus, come and bless this ordinary bread and wine and juice. Make good on your promise that you're going to show up in a very present and powerful way when we do this by faith. Not because the bread is magic, but because you are present. And so come and fill us and feed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, after he was crucified, I mean, before he was crucified, he broke bread to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take me and do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, and after doing thanks, he poured it out, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of all of your sin. Drink it. <coughs> we have three tables for you run to them, go to them, uh, with one in the front and two in the back, you can come up right away or stand in line, um, or you can sit in your seats and uh, pause for a moment, to pray and reflect, that's what you need, so come on your own time whenever you're ready, we have bread and crackers for people with allergies, also wine and juice, just take the cups uh, and leave them in the big basket before you leave, that'll help us clean up a little bit. Uh, come forward if you're someone that's embraced Jesus and you've connected to his church that you're someone that knows you need feeding. I'm helpless. I would die without Jesus. That's what this meal is all about, right? Uh, And if you're not there, maybe you're still processing the story of Jesus but you haven't yet embraced him fully and you're not able to confess, gosh I need him for life, then it wouldn't be the right time for you to be a part of this table. You would actually be sort of contradicting your own deepest beliefs, and we don't want to lead you down that road either. We want to uphold your own religious integrity, even in this time. But you can use this time really well. Maybe think about some of the things you heard, maybe even things you didn't like, maybe some things you did like. Jot down some notes, use some of the reflection questions in the bulletin, but you too can use this time very well, as all of us together try to commune with God, but in different ways. If you're taking communion here, Come forward, though. Come with faith, come with joy, come with open arms, open hearts. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good.